Scott. Hello, I'm Julie. And this is a Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. Yes. One corpse too many. That sounds real. <laughs> yeah, usually to me. <laughs> usually one corpse is too many. <laughs> but in this case, it's the ninety-fifth corpse that's too many. Right. Uh, you feel like the other 94 are, well, the point is made through the book. Maybe the 94 are also too many, but the 95th <laughs> is definitely right. too many. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this book is One Corpse Too Many, which is the second Brother Cadfail book by Ellis Peters, who is actually Edith Par- Pargeter? Pargeter? Yeah, let's say that. Okay. <laughs> Apologies to people who know yes. how to say her name. <laughs> right. But Ellis Peters is uh, the pseudonym that she uses, and she's written a ton of books. Um, but this is the second book in a 21-book series. Yes, and I chose this because, for one thing, it just seemed to me like the kind of mystery series that you would love. Yes. Mm-hmm. And... I myself had tried several times to read it and it's been recommended and all these things. And what I discovered is I kind of had to let go of the idea that the author would be cleverer than me about making the mystery happen Mm -hmm. because almost every single one I've read, the murderer is so obvious Mm. from the fairly close to the beginning. I don't know if you felt that with this book. Um, I, you know, I had some guesses, but I, I find when I read mysteries like this, I'm not usually, and maybe I'm odd that way, but I'm not usually trying to figure out who did it. I, I enjoy the way that the main character, who's usually pretty clever, is uncovering it all. And You're along um, for the ride. Yeah, I'm along for the ride, I guess. That's probably the best way to say it. But even when I read like an Agatha Christie um, oh, well. I, I don't spend time, you know, trying to figure out who it is or who oh, did it. You well, know what I mean? Because there's no point. Yeah, right, <laughs> she right. She will fool you. <laughs> <laughs> and even if I guess with Agatha Christie, it's for all the wrong reasons, you know. Um, but that's why I was so surprised because I will find myself guessing as I go. I'm not trying to figure it out by going, oh, based on this clue. But I'll just go, oh, I, I think it's per- this person probably because of this thing. And some authors I can do it, some I can't. But this author, consistently, the mystery to me is not the highlight of the book um, for the reasons I'm saying. Where in this book, um, this book was one of the more interesting in that sense of that I really wasn't sure which of the two suitors probably was the murderer. Um, Until towards the end when I was like, oh, this character is being made too likable. That's just, you know, but um, every single one, and I've seen other people talk about that too. And I didn't pick the first one because I could, I've tried three times to read the first one and finally forced my way through it. I just don't think it's the same quality book as the others in the series. Other people may have different opinions. Interesting. But to me, yeah, it's kind of like Parks and Recreation. You could Mm -hmm. start with season two and you get the best part of it. And um this, though, what I love about this series is Brother Cadfield is a great character. 
by making him a former crusader, I guess. I Or maybe that wasn't the time when they would call him a crusader. It seems to be a big deal that he is of the world, <laughs> yeah. right? He's been out in the world. And that reminded me of like Shepard Book from uh, Firefly. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I kept feeling that, um, boy, I bet you in future volumes this becomes really important. And I'm guessing that maybe it does, but... You know, it's some um, mm-hmm. sometimes, but he does have a more practical point of view of the world than yes. some people mm-hmm. because of that. And he can relate easily to people like Hugh Berengar and um, other people he runs into who are just purely secular because he's got that practical experience from fighting in the Holy Land and being um, a, a regular warrior and person before he decided he better join a monastery. And but he also is very much a monk. Mm-hmm. He believes in all the things. It's not like some of the series now where they'll write them and it's in the past. I'm thinking right now the uh, Falco novels by Lindsay Davis, which I like a lot, but the character is very modern sounding. And some of his opinions are kind of modern too, in the way that maybe a sophisticated Roman might have been. So Falco is a... He's a... De- yeah, he's a private detective in the time of Vespasian. I think oh. that's how you say the name, Emperor Vespasian. Gotcha. And if you ever want to try those, start with the first one and keep going because those are very entertaining. Mm. And that person also was a historian, that author. Mm-hmm. So all the history is right, and every other book takes place in some other place than Rome. So you're getting to see ancient Gaul, ancient Germany, or whatever it was called then. All of the places. Um, but He's very modern sounding. Mm. In this, they sound more old fashioned in a sense. Yeah. Still very readable, but the way thing there's no slang being used, or if it is, it's slang of the time. And um, nobody, no opinions that are being given are things like, oh, well, yeah, they say God says that. Nope. If that's what the church teaches and it's a right doctrine, that's what these people believe and will talk about. So one of the big things in this book that kind of interested me was the use of the um, corporeal work of mercy of burying the dead. Mm, yeah, is how Brother Catfield even gets brought into it. And I was, and the way he talks about it, and the way everybody looks at it, is very reverent, even though these people are all um, enemy soldiers. Yeah, and and you say you say enemy soldiers, but the, he seems in the middle of it, like. He's not picking a side. Right, because yeah. for one thing, it's a civil war. Right, yeah. How can how can you say which side? And he's like, I don't really know which side is right, but what I know is these are human beings who are stuck in the middle. Absolutely, right. And this probably mm-hmm. wasn't the best choice to make for a lot of reasons. And that gets talked about some. And that's not exhaustively, but it's almost used to scold people with sometimes. And so in that sense, this series is refreshing because the author is really trying hard to represent how the people thought and acted in those times. And it's, so it's kind of like a little time capsule. And I enjoy, as it goes along, um, I enjoy the relationship between two of the people, which we can talk about after spoilers. I enjoy the, um, the setting Mm-hmm. The Civil War, and of course, the author very cleverly picked a time period that none of us know about, the Empress Maud and King Stephen, and you're going, what? But they were real. <laughs> yeah. And mm-hmm. this town, which is kind of caught between all that, and then Brother Cadfail is Welsh. And they've got a very um, 
interesting relationship with the English also. So there are, there's a book not too far down the series where he actually winds up going to Wales and talking to the people there about something he's trying to discover. Mm-hmm. Well, you find out their attitudes and how they run themselves in government and uh, all that. And then you find out what it's like to live there and in a Lord's house. And I mean, just, it's very well told mm. that way. And I listened to um, Patrick Tull read them. I like his narration. Yeah. Patrick Tull. Yeah. You pointed me to him um, in our, um, Oh, the master the, and commander. That's it. Master commander. Right. Which I have, and I've listened to a little bit and I'm going to jump into that. But he's great. Patrick Tull is wonderful. I really like it. If you either like him or you don't, you'll see people mm. complaining and other people like me defending him. <laughs> and I discovered him in, I think it might have been a free or cheap offering of Around the World in 80 Days. And he read it. And I was like, yeah, the book is better than I thought because this guy is a great, engaging narrator. Well, nice. So, anyway. Yeah. So I, I I found a very short interview um, from the BBC of the author, um, oh. and I I couldn't tell when it was, but you know she was writing these pretty late in her life. Um, mm-hmm. she, I, it looks like she passed away when she was about eighty two, and that was in nineteen ninety five. But she talked about, um, and I, as I look here at the Wikipedia entry in front of me, um, it it says you know one corpse too many was written in July nineteen seventy nine. And it was set in August uh, 1138. <laughs> and then in the next volume is Monk's Hood. And it was set mm-hmm. in December 1138. And then the next one was July 1139. So um, she's actually moving through history and, um, you know, trying to stay loyal to the history as she's doing it. Do you find that, that that's the case? Well, and I don't know the history, but it, mm-hmm. it is one of the interesting things about it. And the last book of the series that I read, um, I didn't really love the book because I could tell from the second two people showed up what was happening with these people. And then everybody else in the book was clueless till like three-fourths of the way through. Hmm. And I was like, this is frustrating in the extreme. But the interesting part about the book to me was there was a town that had come under siege and been overrun And so part of what was going on as the background was they were trying to deal with who's got reports of, I've heard the city's on fire, there are people coming this way, we don't know where this person disappeared to, word of mouth, we're trying to track down this this girl and see if she's all right. And um, just thinking of the logistics of that stuff back then was really interesting to me. Yeah, that does sound interesting. So she's taking, the author is taking certain events. Like one time, um, a very important person gets captured. What do you do about a prisoner exchange? Mm. Uh, What do you do about trying to get your people back and theirs? And how do they handle it? And all those (laughs) things. Yeah, because some of them wind up staying at the monastery as kind of a neutral spot. That's great. She said she loved reading um, history books that give you details like, you know, how did they uh, manage this plant or whatever? Mm. And how did they preserve it and, and all that, those kinds of details. Um, she really enjoyed that nitty gritty stuff and, and reveled in finding those details that she could put in the books. Yeah. With his uh, herb garden. And, um, and sometimes that's more important than others. At one point there's a leper colony 
that they have nearby that he's, you know, providing medicines for. And, Interesting. You know, yeah. Dealing yeah. with his assistants, the various assistants he's given, who provide some different personalities, but also some of those details that she liked. Right. That, well, he boiled this too long. It's all messed <laughs> up now. Yeah, so it is almost as if the, the mystery is almost secondary. It's just a place for her to set these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then um, the idea that Brother Cadfail has nothing but observation to deal with uh, or, or as in his toolkit, yeah. you know what I mean? Cause there's no, no technology, no fingerprints, no, nothing, no DNA obviously. But um, that, that's an interesting thing um, that she is limited in that aspect. The author, when she writes her mysteries. Yeah. And it's, he's got that. And I guess a natural sense of, logic maybe how things fit together mm-hmm. and he's it's not like he's an Hercule Poirot but he's he'll just say that didn't make sense or this thing I saw seems to indicate this other thing as you're saying it's the observation but then he's also kind of an inquiring mind in terms of being curious yeah yeah very much so and he's he's uh he likes people I mean he's he um there's almost an optimism to it kind of a mm-hmm. hopefulness to it despite the time that it's set in um and the author yeah. actually mentioned that and she said it was actually a very optimistic time um oh, really? she said the weather was actually very favorable you know um it was just you know even during that the, there's this civil war going on she said but it was an optimistic time when you compare it to other times um so i thought that that was interesting but brother catfail himself you know something that that I noticed, you know, with what you said about his observation skills, he, he did kind of revel in being set against a person logically, (laughs) right? Like in this book, there was, there was a point where he's, he's, uh, out guessing somebody and he says, well, this person obviously has put, you know, I'm, I'm going to say all the chips on the table, but that's not how he put it. But it's like, uh, he is, banking on the fact that he knows what I'm going to do next. But yeah. uh, I am also going to put all my chips on the table because <laughs> yeah, I a, think I know what he's doing next, you know, and it, it, and all that's kind of in his head. And it, there's this little, you know, this is kind of fun. You know what I mean? That was for me, the highlight of the whole book was I, I you know, the mystery, the idea of the town under siege and how the people would have been living there and what would have happened to them later and the way that the king acts when the town is taken, because this happens very early in the book, all this stuff, um, was interesting. Those details were all very interesting. But what I loved was the battle of wits he has hmm. with one person. Yeah. And that was just, you, you found both people because they weren't mean-spirited about it. It was a battle of wits. They knew it was a battle of wits, and they were respecting the other person and then kind of reveling in it at the same time. Yeah. So um, it was just, it was super fun to me to read all that part. So let me uh, really quickly, we've gotten so far into this, but it's so very briefly <laughs> for anybody who hasn't read it. Great. Um, so England and Wales are having this civil war between Stephen and the Empress Maud. And they're set in, it's set in Shrewsbury, 
And that's the town where everything kind of is the base of for all these books. But the king decide, the king gets in and he says, okay, as an example, we're going to kill all these people on the enemy side because they yeah. were holding out against him and they shouldn't have done that in his opinion, of course. So he has, there's uh, 94 soldiers that are going to be killed. And when Brother Cadville, <laughs> then they ask the, the monks at the abbey to come in and prepare them for a proper burial and to get them ready so that relatives can come and claim the bodies. And they'll let them do that without persecuting the relatives, which is very generous. And um, then Brother Cadfield is very detail-oriented in, that, in the sense that he counts the bodies and goes, yeah, but we have 95. <laughs> and at one point, the sheriff goes, 94, 95, what difference does it make? And he goes, it makes a difference. Yes, it does. Because this body, <laughs> I've laid out all these bodies here. This one looks like he was strangled to death with a garrote. That's how you say <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, he, he goes, has to go through all yeah. the bodies. You know, he's like, yeah. which one of these is not like the others? You know, and he found one. Well, yeah. yeah, he starts really looking. and mm-hmm. But then I was thinking of the task of laying out 94 bodies that have mm-hmm. just been hung and thrown down in a ditch for the monks to get later and treat respectfully. Yes, yeah. Because everybody at the time, doesn't matter who they were, what side they were on, they know they need a decent burial. And the last right set, all the things. So they're all very religious. So anyway, when he um, spots the 95th corpse, that's when they figure out there's been a murder and this is being treated separately. There's also a young woman who uh, whose own family has been divided by which civil war side will they be loyal to. And so she's trying to find her brother who was on the other side. There are two men who are suitors of hers, possibly, who also have their own loyalties. Um, so there's a lot of this back and forth possibility of who's telling the truth about what they're who they're loyal to. One person in particular, Hugh Berengar, he is he was formerly on another side, but now maybe he's on this side. And he's like, well, I was just taking my time to think it through. <laughs> so do you believe him or do you not? Yeah, because he's a bit of a clever young man, and um, so all this and there's some treasure that's been stolen to to sneak out for the other side of the Civil War. The king's trying to lay his hands on that treasure because he wants it. So there's all this stuff going on at the same time that they're trying to get the corpses identified and figure out who did this murder and why, mm-hmm. and even who the corpse is. Because yep. at one point, the sheriff says, oh, don't worry about it. Just don't even mention it. And he says, yeah, but we don't know who this young man is. And what if he belonged to the king's side? And he's like, damn it. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you just, you know, announce it? Let's go on. And so they have to bring it to light. So that's the other thing about it doesn't matter if it seems inconvenient or trivial. This person's life matters to somebody, if not for their own sake. Yeah. Absolutely, he said. He said something like, "The king, the king authorized the death of these ninety-four people, but there yeah. is one whose the king did not authorize." <laughs> and and we the will, king is outraged. Yep, yep. How dare they hide their murdered body in the ones that all I had rightfully <laughs> slain? <Yeah. laughs> Makes me look bad. Oh shoot! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's something. Yeah. yeah. So Shrewsbury or Shrewsbury. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's lots of words that are spelled one way or pronounced a different way. No, Patrick uh, Tull always said Shrewsbury, so okay, I just so went wonderful. With that. Shrewsbury, but it, looks like it is. Shrewsbury. I'm sure yeah. that that's right. Um, but there's a castle in that town, and there's an mm-hmm. abbey in that town, and those are both real places. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, King Stephen, um, in this book anyway. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't centered in that town forever. Um, but in this book anyway, that it's just this is where the battle is happening. And at the very opening of the book, um, you know, there's there's fighting going on, and uh, you know, but Cadfail, brother Cadfail's at the abbey, and you, you see smoke and stuff rising in the, not in the super distance, but you know, over there, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's stuff yeah. going on over there, and there's smoke rising yeah. and stuff, and you're like, well, I wonder how that's going. Yeah, because it's the end of the battle, and they everybody's kind of going, yeah, they can't possibly hold out. Yeah. Um, it's just the question of who's going to give themselves up, who's sneaking out, so <laughs> the town is under this uh, guard to try to keep anybody infor- important from sneaking out, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of an interesting change, because the Abbey, my impression, and I didn't look at a map, I thought it was just outside the town. So yeah, um, I think you're right. They're kind of attached to the town in that they're very close and they serve the town, uh, but they also are apart from it some, which is of course proper as it would be for a monastery. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it's interesting the um, the people that are so King Stephen is the one that is besieging the castle, and um, so the people that are in it are on Maud's side, Empress Maud. Right. Um, but, you know, just like you were saying, they, they kind of had to pick a side. And how they pick sides, you don't really quite understand. But um, it seems like they had pledged something to King Stephen and then changed their minds and uh, were now on Maud's side. <laughs> and all of that, you know, is it's interesting. So then when when this person comes to uh, Cadfail and, um, you know, they say, you know, Godric, you know, here's... Here's Godric, and uh, can you take care of Godric? You know, of course, Catfell immediately knows something's not quite as it seems. Um, let's, let's go into spoilers. Yeah, okay, great. Spoilers! Yep. Spoiler time! Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Say it. Yeah, so yes. he, yeah, he's a she. Um, she's hiding, right? Um, and her real name is Godith, and she is the daughter of um, someone who's in the castle being besieged. And, um, right. you know, so, but Cadfail doesn't even question, he doesn't know who she is. Um, but he knows that she's a she immediately, you know, right. and, um, and, but doesn't care who, who she is. He's like, okay, well, you know, this is a person that needs assistance and I'm going to help. Um, but he wouldn't have cared which side she was on. And, uh, yeah. And he doesn't even have to. The thing that is good about the author is the author doesn't sit there and go, Catfield didn't care. He was going to help anyway. She yeah. never does that stuff. Yeah. It's just he just goes right forward because one of the interesting things about the book is the treasure is supposed to be given. The treasure belongs to the people who had the castle in Shrubsbury. And they're trying to smuggle it out so they can give it to the Empress Maud to continue her fight with. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's Goddeth or whatever her name is, mm-hmm. is trying to do that and get help from a young man who was sent to collect it. And then Hugh Berengar, 
is on King Stephen's side. He's trying to get that treasure and keep it for King Stephen, who knows it's around. And he's like, I want it. It's I'm going to keep this treasure. Mm-hmm. And um, Catfield doesn't seem to really care, as you say, about which side. He just knows that this young couple, these two young people, have their own goal, and he's willing to help them do it. He doesn't care who it's going to support. This is their goal. It's above above board from their point of view. Mm-hmm. He'll help them with it. <laughs> you know, yeah, he won't. He won't. At the very least, he's not going to prevent them from it. And oh, no, he's he going to. He's helps going to. Them. Yeah, he actively helps them, but he's also you know protecting at least the girl's life. Um, and and I love how clever he he was. Um, like he goes into his uh, where he's growing all the herbs and stuff. And says, this is going to be your place. And uh, you can lock this door, by the way. (laughs) And she's like, why would I need to lock the door? You know, so it's like, you know, so she knew that he knew at that point. I I thought that was kind of neat. Didn't you also know? I did. I knew immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is the problem with the mysteries often. Mm -hmm. This one's a little more clouded and better done than most of the others. But most of the others, even this one, you go, oh. She's stopped developing this one character, yeah. the guy who's, you know, the other escort, who's King Stephen's man and all this kind of thing. Um, Hugh Berengar is much more interesting character, but everything he does always winds up being above board and honorable from his point of view and the way that he and Cadfail are battling to try and get this treasure. And so because of that, you just look at this other guy and go, this has to be the one who did it. You, you don't know why or how necessarily, <laughs> yeah. except as Cadfield discovers it. It's kind of like when you're watching a TV show and a, an actor that you recognize is playing what seems to be a minor role. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there's one reason for that. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I liked the, I have a bit of description of, Hugh's relationship with um, Cadfield. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I did want to say also, Cadfield, in every single book, this one's interesting because there's double romances. So there's Hugh and Aileen and Godric, and I can't remember the other the young man's name that she's interested in. But um, she there's so there's two romances he's helping along. Mm-hmm. In every single book, there's some romance that he winds up fostering. <laughs> All the different ways. That's nice. That something can get in the way of it. I know. So there's always that. So um, they bring out Hugh's horse, and um, he's going to have uh, Catfield ride it. Hugh's is he goes, not that I wouldn't trust it with you on the cob, Berengar assured Catfield, but this great brute will never even notice the weight, and his rider needs a hard hand for he has a hard mouth and a contrary will, and I'm used to him. To tell truth, I love him. I parted with two better worth keeping, but this hellion is my match, and I wouldn't change him. And I should say Cobb is his horse, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he could not have better expressed what Caffiel was thinking about him. This hellion is my match, and I wouldn't change him. He did his own spying. He gave away generously two valuable horses to discharge his debt to a bride he never really wanted, and he went to all manner of patient, devious shifts to get the girl well, safe and well out of his path and lay hand upon the treasury, which was fair game, as she was not. Well, well, we live and learn in the book of our fellow men. Mm-hmm. And so, they, so that really sums up everything you did in... 
but looking at it from a character point of view. Because mm. it's only yeah. as he goes that he, that um, Cadfield goes, oh, he figured that out. Oh, it was him. Oh, he's doing this now. Okay. <laughs> and then he's respecting him more and more. But as he sees the results of why he did stuff, like he, he didn't want that ride, but he made sure that she was going to get what she should have. Mm. Yeah. But this, anybody could have this treasure. So he's going to take that if he can. Right. And, and you, you um, told me that um, Hugh actually ends up being part of the books moving forward, too, almost a partner. Yeah, he's he's hired on as an assistant sheriff to the town in the next book. Mm-hmm. And then he winds up, eventually he becomes the sheriff of the town. Yeah. So if something comes up, he and Catfield will work together to solve it. Because he's out there with his men looking for clues and doing stuff. And Catfield can't always do that. Mm-hmm. He's got his own duties. Right. <laughs> yeah, he talks about the penance he'll have to do if he, you know, because he's missed lauds or matins or something. Yep. Yes. <laughs> so he's missed those. So he's going to have to do penance and, um, yeah, while he's out there sleuthing and stuff. Good yes. stuff. Love it. Yeah. 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 So, um, so yeah, it's uh, like we said before, but it's mentioned a few times in the book that um, he comes from elsewhere and has lived his life before he showed up here. And the, a crusade in Jerusalem was mm-hmm. part of that life. Um, at this point in this book, I would say it's, it's largely a mystery. You know, he doesn't give a lot of details, but he does say that um, he was in Jerusalem. So, again, I don't know if that becomes larger later, but... Um, but he says he says things like, The trouble with me, he thought unhappily, is that I have been about the world long enough to know that God's plans for us, however infallibly good, may not take the form that we expect and demand. And, um, yeah, so he's, he, it's like um, the author is taking pains to make sure that we know that he is able to observe a lot more than other people because he's been out and about and mm-hmm. seen things. And um, uh, unlike the rest of the monks, who are really minor characters, you know, um, yeah, they, we don't spend a lot of time with them. There are later books where some, uh, there's one where somebody's poisoned, some visitor is poisoned. Mm-hmm. And there's also, at the same time, you see the monks, certain monks, battling for power within the hierarchy of what's going on in the monastery. Yeah through this investigation. And so um, all those kinds of things are investigated. And what I like about what you just read is he's still, there's a reason he's a monk. He does recognize that, you know, God's got supremacy over these things. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you don't try to solve the mystery or do whatever, but it does mean that if something throws you off what you expect, God's plan might show you something different. You know, and and that's some of the stuff I liked where it's not a huge part of the book, but it's always there as a thread underneath because he is a truly faithful of his time monk. Yeah. And there's right. something valuable in that, I yeah, think. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, completely. He's not there in hiding or anything. He's not no, there no. he's not there and not a monk and is just like trying not to be found. <laughs> you know, uh he is a monk. He, he's come to yeah. this conclusion that this is how he wants to finish his life. Right, and he's not mm-hmm. even nominally like, oh, I'll just say I'm a monk, and not even that I'm hiding out, but I just am done with the world now. Right. And there's somebody in the book who's a soldier, warrior, or something, 
who says, yeah, well, just because you wound up there doesn't mean I'm going to do it later. And he goes, oh, that's what I would have said at your age, too. But here I am. (laughs) Here I am, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't come up much. It does come up occasionally Mm -hmm. um, here and there. But it's also that idea that um, the people that you least expect can have unexpected depths or God can call them out to change what they're thinking and doing. Mm-hmm. And um, we don't see that much in our lives in big celebrities or anything. They're not, and she's not showing us, oh, King Stephen, change of heart. She's like, no, he's kind of lazy, and now he's sorry he did this other thing in the heat of the moment. And um, but the little people around us, and I say little, only meaning like me, regular people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you hear about their past, and you go, whoa, you you did what? <laughs> you were who? Yes, yeah. Yeah. And now you're just this regular father or regular right. um, woman doing this charity thing or whatever it is. Yes. And, and part of it is um, aging as well. Um, mm-hmm. I, I highlighted mm-hmm. another thing that, so near the end of the book, there, there's going to be a fight. Um, Q is going to be part of this fight. And um, it says that at every stroke, thought Cad fail helplessly and doubted that all these tranquil years since he took the cowl had really made any transformation in a spirit once turbulent, insubordinate, and incorrigibly rash. He could, <laughs> he could feel his blood rising as though it was he who must enter the lists. So, so yeah, he's, it's like he's remembering his past life and um, perhaps a slight tiny bit of lament, you know, that, that he's not the one that, can take care of this, uh, what's about to happen. Um, but it is Hugh and, and he's there, you know, in conversation with Hugh, mm-hmm. um, when he's feeling these things. And, um, I thought that was a really nice touch too. Yeah. And I, I can't believe you reminded me, I almost forgot about this two hour duel that's fought mm-hmm. to show what is God's will. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the way it winds up, anybody would say is coincidence, except nobody there says it's coincidence because it's such a weird coincidence mm. that ends it. Yeah. Um, that sh- that you go, yeah, they're not wrong to say this is God's will. Mm. Even though it seems like a weird way to settle things to us is going, well, we can't really decide <laughs> here, so I claim, you know, right a battle. Whoever wins, God's on their side. Yes. <laughs> That's funny. You know, I mean, yeah. that kind of comes up so much, you know, uh, you know, when I read this, I've just come across some things like in, um, in Bible study, first Kings, there's this, there's this time where, um, was it Elijah? I believe Elijah mm-hmm. saying, uh, you know, it basically he's, he's, uh, bringing fire down upon offerings, you know, yes. and it, <laughs> you know, the 800 priests of Baal. Right. Right. Can't so, do it. yeah. And, uh, so there's that and it's like, you know, well, which one's better? And he even laughed at the, the other person. He said, you know, the, the, the person who's praying to their God, trying to, uh, do something to an offering. And uh, I'm pretty sure it was Elijah who was just laughing at him, saying, "Hey, do you need me to wake him up, or or what?" There was there was some some comment like that. Oh no, a lot of comments like that. He's like, "Oh, hold on, maybe he wasn't listening." 
And one thing that they say is never translated this way, but what it would have meant in the context of the time is maybe he's in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> Should we knock and see if he's there? Yeah. I mean, he is just, just insulting. Yeah. Heck just out of insulting his heck, you know, and then, yeah. and then he brings fire down and uh, burns that thing till it's gone, you know? So it was just like, boom, love it. After he's like That's putting awesome. water all over it. Yeah, for sure. I don't want any unfair advantage. I mean, he's <laughs> just in your face. I love oh, that. shoot. Yeah, that's one of my favorite bits. Oh, too good. And then you remember in the All Saga when uh, the Christian guy shows up in Iceland and um, basically there's a challenge. And um, oh, I can't yes. remember the exact detail of what the challenge was, but it had something to do with fire and. Um, you know, uh, whichever one does it better, we have the right God. <laughs> and I, you know, I can't remember the exact details of it, but, um, but I loved it. Well, yeah. And I, gosh, and I should know better which saint, um, it's a saint to the Germans or whatever their country was called at the time, Boniface maybe, mm-hmm. who basically said, oh, really? To the king. Let me just tell you. My God, your God is living in a tree, and or maybe it was a bunch of druids, and my God is doing this to the tree, and at that very moment, <laughs> lightning comes down and splits the t- tree in half, and there's this huge pine tree, and mm-hmm. it burns up. And they're you all bet. like, hail your God. <laughs> done and done. <laughs> oh, Christianity's here. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, so here it is, you know, and um, I imagine that's a medieval way of thinking. Um, saying, yeah, let's let's do this, and and who wins will tell us who's uh, who deserved to win, or who God wanted to win. Right? Yeah, and and I don't know if I am. I don't know if it's that I'm more realistic in saying I don't know if that's true, or if mm-hmm. I'm just modern in and less of a believer, less faithful, and less trusting in saying that's true because I feel like that's a wonderful moment of trust. Yeah, it sure You're going to do it. God's yeah. on your side. You're doing your best. And however mm-hmm. it turns out is how God wants it to turn out. Yeah. And But I love that there are a lot of things about the medieval mindset that I really like. And I think it's I've read too much C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and um, I hang out on a couple of podcasts where they talk about books and things. But, I mean, not that I'm on the podcast, but I listen to them. where. Yeah they're always kind of talking about there are a lot of things that were correct about the way they thought about the world. And as Lewis said, not everything was right, (laughs) but a lot of the attitude, like um, in the uh, ransom trilogy, the space trilogy that we read out of the silent Mm -hmm. planet where ransom is realizing that space is not silent. The stars are singing. This mm. is a medieval mindset. Yeah, yeah. And I love that idea because I can't, yes, there's a vacuum, Joss Whedon, I get it, that's fine. <laughs> but I, I like to think about mm. the stars are singing because with just joy of creation, of being oh, there. Yes. You know, and that to me is very appealing. So there's a lot of things about that I like. And maybe that's what I like about this is everybody, to more or less extent, has their faith woven into their lives. And that's, that's absolutely so. And um, yeah, and it, it makes a difference in their lives too. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is um, one of the guiding principles that's happening, you know, even with the king, you know, King Stephen, um, 
you know, these are, these are things, thoughts that are in their heads and, and it affects how they interact with the world. Um, and I do really like that. Yeah. And one of the things that gets, um, used in here without actually calling it the corporal works of mercy is the corporal works of mercy. Hmm. And so I just, uh, we're recording this during Lent. And so I'm just going to mention the way that the church thinks about it is there's spiritual works of mercy, and that's your praying for people, you know, that kind of thing. And then there's corporal bodily works of mercy. And they say they're found in the teachings of Jesus, and they give us a model for how we treat others because we should think of them as if they were Christ in disguise because if God made each of us in his own image, there's that that we should be keeping in mind. So this is also, I like, because... It's that reminder that body and soul are one thing together. Mm-hmm. They're not separate. And so, I'll just quickly, it's feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, shelter the homeless, visit the sick, visit the prisoners, bury the dead, give alms to the poor. Mm-hmm. And um, during Lent, of course, we're kind of combining those a little because the three big things you're asked to do is almsgiving, prayer, and uh, fasting. And those three all work together. Uh, they say that almsgiving and fasting are the wings that carry your prayers to heaven. This hmm. is like Thomas Aquinas or Augustine, one of the biggies like that, right? Yeah. And um, in this book, I was immediately taken, as I've mentioned, by the fact that they're burying the dead. They're specifically, even the enemies who killed these people know that this is something that needs to be done. And um, so when you were saying that Cadfield was looking at the people, but it talks about what it meant. And I suddenly thought about it going, oh my goodness, this is more hands-on than I really ever thought about. It's a, so they're, um, they've got everybody in this big hall. And it says they had started work early, but it was approaching noon by the time they had all the dead laid out in the ward and were beginning the work of washing and composing the bodies as becomingly as possible, straightening broken limbs, closing and waiting eyelids, even brushing tangled hair into order and binding fallen jaws so that the dead face might be no horror to some unfortunate parent or wife who had loved it in life. Hmm. And that's when Cadfield's walking through, checking everybody to make sure everybody's as presentable as they could be. And that's when he's counting. Yeah. And going, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. But you think about that, and that's what burying the dead means. Absolutely. It's hands-on. And we don't have that these days because we're, you know, there's the funeral industry and everything. Um, There's a wonderful movie, Japanese movie called Departures. And it's about a young man who has to move to a small town and he gets a job that he thinks from the description is to be a travel agent because you're going to help people go on a journey. But what it is, is the old Japanese uh, custom of preparing the body for cremation by doing this sort of thing, but you do it in the presence of the family. Mm, Wow. It's a great movie. Sometime we'll watch it. I keep shoving Mm -hmm. it back, but it, Anybody gets a chance to watch it. It's called Departures. It made me think okay. Departures, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, you know, when you think, you know, 95 bodies, you know, from a battle, um, 
you know, to be reminded that those are individuals with lives, you know, is, um, is something that's vitally important. And, um, you know, as we think of things like Ukraine, you know, the, the, there's a war oh, in Ukraine yeah. as we record this and, right. um, you know, we, we hear numbers, you know, a hundred people or something like that, you know, but it's just like, my gosh, you know, those are people on both sides of that thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. those are, those are individuals that meant something to other people and, um, Oh, just just the deep effect of that is yeah, just the parents, stunning. the children, the spouse yeah. who's left behind, mm -hmm. the friends. Right. You know, this he's just talking about the ones who would come and have to identify the body. Yeah. Imagine and there's a young woman who I mentioned before, Aileen, who is has got to walk through and look for her brother. Yeah, she's wondering if her brother made it through and uh, has to go look. So she has to look at all the bodies. Yeah. And that's not the only uh, corporal work of mercy that the the monastery is about. You know, they uh, there were times. Well, I remember one time in particular where someone is in the presence of King Stephen, and um, I can't remember. They were having a conversation, um, and then he said, "Well, I'm going to go over to the abbey and see if I can stay there." You know, so th that was the place where people would go to uh, find shelter, you know, right. when they had no place else to go, that's where the natural place to go. And, um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that happens. Um, that brings a lot of things in contact, the world into contact with the Abbey too. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. um, and another work of mercy is specifically, um, it's, is it Aileen? So the sister of, who's looking for the brother, he is dead, and his things are given to her. And she takes his hose and kind of like leggings and gives them to Cadfail. She takes um, a fine brown coat or cloak and gives it to him and says, um, and there's also a, a fancy cloak, that, that a black cloak. I guess a coat, C-O-T-T-E, is maybe like a tunic, actually. And, but anyway, she says, these things are still really good. Give them to someone who needs them. And we've seen these people kind of mentioned just in passing as like he's going into the town or whatever. And so he, this says, toward the end of the book, it says, Within the, t within the town gate, Catfield had seen the blind old man sitting almost proudly in Giles Seward's good cloth ho hose holding out his palm for alms with a dignified gesture. At the high cross, he saw the little old woman clasping by the hand her feeble-wit grandson with his dangling lip, and the fine brown coat sat well on him, and gave him an air of rapt content by its very texture. Oh, Aileen, you ought to give your own charity and see what it confers beyond food and clothing. Hmm. So there's that sense of the dignity it gives to someone by giving them something that is nice. And this is when St. Vincent de Paul says gently used things, you know. <laughs> wow. It's like, uh, makes me think of the Simpsons when Marge says, if you'll, if you'll spare the town from this tornado, uh, what will I do, God? What will I do? Oh, I know. I'll give the poor something they'd really like to eat instead of old pumpkin pie mix and lima beans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my <laughs> gosh. You clean out of your cupboard, you know. And yes. um, mm. it's that thing of, uh, what would I want to be given? 
and yeah. the dignity it confers on these people. I loved that point. And then there was a, there's a man who can't walk anymore. He's got a little trolley that he moves around on. Mm, yes. And mm-hmm. he's got this folded black cloak that he folds so it looks as nice as possible. And that actually winds up being a clue to something later on. Right. But it also gives him dignity. For some reason, uh, the movie we talked about, The Phantom Carriage, came into mind when you were talking about that. And that coat that mm. that one lady, you know, fixed up for that, oh, gosh, that yeah. poor guy. <laughs> yeah, that uh, horrible man. Um, but, but yeah, you know, and how he just tore it up. And um, it's like, he you know, but you talked about the dignity of giving somebody something nice um, that he rejected. You know, he yeah. completely rejected it. I'm not worth this. Don't give me your pity. Yeah. And then how they were carrying on the same work that um, Cadfail and monks do, mm-hmm. you know, that far in the future. That's right. Continues the housing, today. the mm-hmm. food, yep. the bed to sleep in. Right. Same thing. Something nice. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. was just listening to, there's, I can't remember if I've mentioned this podcast called Old Books. Wait. Yeah, old books with Grace. Yes, you have. You bet. And um, yeah, the do so woman's again. name is Grace. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, yeah, she's doing a series on the seven deadly vices and their corresponding virtues mm-hmm. that are the cure for the vices. And she was just talking about avarice this week and saying that um, one of the cures for avarice is to give generously. Mm. And she said, and you're supposed to give to people no matter what their condition or what you think of them morally. So you can give to the little orphan child the same way that you're supposed to give to, um, or you give to the heroin addict, the same way that you would gladly give to somebody who seems more worthy, basically. Um, And I just had a conversation with somebody on Facebook about that. Hmm. So I was struck mm-hmm. by it. Yeah, because yeah. it's um, St. John Vianney who says, um, and, and think how long ago this was, you know, you say, oh, this person could work. They should be a better person. I shouldn't give them money. It's like, you don't know what God's going to do with them. Mm-hmm. This is about what God's doing with you and what you're giving to them. Right. And the, yeah. And this is kind of tied to Cadfield saying, oh, Aileen, you should give these things out yourself. You can see what it's doing beyond just being a handout. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, this is cool. Yeah, the, the, these things that are just woven into this narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really bring it out a lot. Yeah. And then, yeah, you know, he would I, pray for ahead. people as well, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, he would say a prayer at Compline for the repose of this person, you know. Um, just love it. You know, it's 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 just neat, you know. So she's she's really giving us uh, a picture and I can imagine that moving forward is gets deeper. More detailed. Yeah. And yeah, it kind of just builds an overall picture of that way of living and that way of thinking. And, and when people have masses said for the dead, they believe it. They they aren't just going, oh, this is what I do because I do it. They believe this is helping their soul. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, so that idea that you said of the more optimistic time or very optimistic time, I'm like, that contributes to that. I mean, the idea that God does love you and is active in your life. And the things you do matter, even if you can't see it on a spiritual level, it's being used. I think that's something that is hard for us. We 
are cynical. We struggle with it because we've seen the facts. Mm -hmm. And I know I do. I kind of go back and forth. And that's kind of why I like books like this, which kind of remind me of, here's the whole mindset. It's okay. Yeah. Just let yourself go. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. I mean, I think we're just pummeled daily with uh, a philosophy that tells us that everything is meaningless. Right. And um, that's just the culture. That's just the prevalent feeling, it seems. And I don't know that a lot of people actually live that way, you know, but it's what we're told for sure. Um, you know, I think some people do fall into despair over that kind of stuff. Um, but that's not the way it is. <laughs> you know, our culture no. is, uh, you know, we're, we're in the wrong story. That's something that I was, I had run into this story. week when I was, um, I, I was looking into the story of salvation and, um, I can't remember who it was that presented. I think it might've been N.T. Wright who presented okay. the story of salvation as a five act thing. And, you know, hmm. it, it begins with the creation and then there's the fall and then there's the creation of, uh, Israel and, hmm. you know, the people Israel. And then there's the, uh, the savior and then there's the yeah. church moving forward. Um, okay. so that's kind of a five act way to, to, or to present the story of salvation. But um, there's this idea that we live, like in the United States, we have our own stories, right? You know, and, right. and the American story is, is an awful good one. Um, but that's not the higher story. It's, and I, it's like um, he was presenting the idea that most people live their daily lives as if they're not in that story of salvation, they're in a different story, oh. but it's like, you know, we've, uh, he, he put it like we dress like we're in Romeo and Juliet. We've memorized all of the lines. We're ready to go on stage, but the problem is we're in Hamlet. <laughs> you know oh, what I mean? That's good. Yeah. It's just very well put. So, um, but that, that's the idea is that we're just we believe we're in the wrong story, but the, the, the larger story is the story of salvation. What book is that? Um, I'll have to look it up for you. Um, but okay, it's, put it yeah, in the N.T. Wright. Notes, yeah. 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 In fact, I got yeah. that. It's from N.T. Wright via Bishop Barron. So what I'll... He's, yeah. Yeah. So I'll um, probably point you to where I heard Bishop Barron talking about it. Perfect. He's, okay. um, of course, Bishop Barron, very trustworthy. And mm. um, I like N.T. Wright. And actually, my priest also has brought him up a few times. You know, mm. he's he. I've read just a few. He does very simple books, and then he does more complex books. Yeah. So you can kind of pick which way you want to go with stuff, I know. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I've read one or two of his books, and I can't remember now. But whenever I've referenced them, they always were very compelling. Yeah, yeah. Then I forgot about him the way you do. <laughs> For sure. So, yeah, so I think overall, when reading a book like this, um, I feel closer to the right story. You know what I mean? It, there, mm-hmm. There is, you know, like this little optimism that you were talking about, but this idea of living in a world where God, you know, the prevailing philosophy anyway is the philosophy that I subscribe to <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, that, that yeah. God is part of the world and that prayers matter and, and these other things, you know, I walk through life uh, living that way. And then um, in a society that doesn't, 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, so uh, it's refreshing to visit a time when, and maybe that's the appeal of medieval times to me. I don't know, but I've just been increasingly interested in medieval stuff. You know, I keep reading about it and uh, keep finding things. Um, like, for example, I just recently read a book called How to Live Like a Monk. <laughs> and oh. I'm looking at it over there. It's How to Live Like a Monk, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Life by Danielle Sibolsky. Uh, and she that, that's a very interesting thing to bring up, too, because um, there's a website called medievalists.net. And she's part of that website, and they have a podcast that occasionally has some really a cool subject to talk about. Um, but that particular book itself was super interesting in learning how monks lived um, and continue to live today, you know, under the Benedictine rule. Mm-hmm. Um, the part about modern life advice, I would was less enamored with. Oh, um, yeah. You know, it, it was basically, here's how monks lived and here's how you can apply it to today. And the application to today I found not very helpful. Um, definitely not a Catholic perspective or a religious perspective coming forth there. Um, but yet it was, it was 75% interesting. (laughs) (laughs) That's where your natural discernment has to take place. Right, right. right. Yeah, exactly. But she's, she's fantastic. Um, the author's fantastic. Uh, she, she's on the podcast often and, um, is terrific. She's a medieval scholar. Uh, I think it's called the medievalists. Oh, okay. um, but the medievalist.net is the the home base. So if you go okay. there, it has all the information. Got it. And they're well, always um, doing things like, uh, here's, uh, you know, maybe monthly, here's the new medieval books that have come out, you know, and some of it could be fiction or nonfiction or whatever, but they're, they're scholars on that site that are presenting, you know, uh, scholarly stuff in a, mm-hmm. in a very nice way. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, in a different um, approach, in a different book, have read The Time Traveler's Guide to Medieval England, a Hmm. handbook for visitors to the 14th century. Cool. It's by Ian Mortimer. And it is just about how did people live. And so it takes you through, well, now you're going up to this town. And um, first thing you notice is you're going to hear noises and smells that you never think about before. For instance, this creek is named Chick Creek, and there's a reason for that. (laughs) And your nose will tell you that soon. And Mm -hmm. you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) But it's a really fascinating book. Um, I'll never forget the thing about the hospitality offered by everybody. And you go stay with the. You're traveling through. You go stay with whoever... uh, is a fairly well-off person in the town, but they're not that well-off because it's a pretty small town. And so how everybody sleeps upstairs, but it's like everything's closed. There's no windows. Everybody's just lying next to each other in their bedding. And like, you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Good luck. Don't step on anyone. Find your way down the stairs in complete darkness. And I'm like, (gasps) (laughs) no flashlight. My gosh. Yes. Right. I I guess I only remember the horrifying things, but Mm. it just was vivid to me. I went, Oh, I never thought about it. Oh, I love it. So that's, I really can recommend that book. It's very readable. Fantastic. Yeah. On, On deck for me is a book that sounds similar. Um, well, it's got a, a tighter focus, maybe. It's called Going to Church in Medieval England by oh. Nicholas Orme. I've heard of that. Oh, cool. Maybe through you. So maybe. have you yeah. started it yet? No, or? I haven't. I haven't. But that's next. Yeah. 
Okay. So right now I'm reading Ale Saga and uh, just starting that. So um, okay. then, uh, yeah, I'll probably... I'm uh, I'm doing this thing on BookTube, you know, uh, the the group read of Ale Saga. So that'll start. Oh, that'll yes. start not this coming Saturday, but the next Saturday, and we'll read a quarter of it at a time, which is a very easy, easy pace. So um, I can read this book um, while I'm doing the other one too. Yeah. Well, I would certainly have to read something else while I was doing that. I'm just gonna say. <laughs> you bet. Yeah. Ale Saga. Can't wait. <laughs> I know. I, I hope there are many lawsuits successfully carried out. Yep, yep. A little yep. bit of fighting. A little bit of fisticuffs. That's right. Yeah, a little bit of Viking of... action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, you have mm-hmm. no fisticuffs, really. <laughs> Unless somebody is sliding down on a big ice bridge. <laughs> That's right. To cut off a bunch of people's oh, heads with his axe, that is which awesome. I will never forget. I, I have been that practicing was... that like crazy. <laughs> I am so ready if that ever comes up. Can you keep your hand in before winter comes, though? It's a long summer. You're going to lose those skills. That's sure. You're right. You're right. How will I practice in the summertime? Maybe the local ice rink will fit something up for you. That's a good idea. That's what I'll do. (laughs) There's one right down the road, too. (laughs) Oh, good. Perfect. (laughs) Oh, I love it. What a fun book. Um, So thank you so much. I love spending time at that time. (laughs) I'm so so glad you liked it. And they're all fairly light in that sense. You Mm -hmm. know, Uh, they immerse you in the world, but lightly. And um, there's always a mystery, but the mystery is usually something that takes place in a bit of the society you haven't seen. Like one is in a rich man's household or fairly well-off man's household. So you get to see the inside of the household pretty well with the family. Made me think of an Agatha Christie with the closed, uh, Mm. you know, the house off in the countryside. And um, although this is in the town, but, you know, you get to know all the people and go, which of the family did it kind of thing. So um, she does change it up. And like I say, I love the Patrick Toll narrations, but there's somebody else who's done them too that Audible also has. So if you don't like those, there's another choice. Interesting. Or the books. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good. Well, I like Patrick Tall, so sign me up. Excellent. (laughs) Sign me up for him. Love it, love it. All right. Well, that's great. Um, So what's coming up next for us? What is next? Ah, Iron Giant. Yep, Iron Giant. Yeah, one that I was surprised we hadn't talked about. Um, So I'm happy that we are. It's another one I've been, it's been on my list forever. And then I keep going, this is shiny. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about this movie instead. (laughs) Uh, This is such a great movie. I love it so much. Yep, I love it. That'll be fun to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yep, shifting gears there. Okay. Yes, and we'll be Mm -hmm. talking about it right when Easter's happening. That's true. Yeah. It strikes me as rather appropriate. Yeah, agreed. That's yeah. right. That's right. Okay. Okay, very good. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Yes, we'll talk to you again soon. You bet. See you soon. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye.